Welcome back to the 1K to Go Sports Podcast. Man, it has been a minute. I'm your host, Bobby Bailey. You know, we started off strong with four solid podcasts and then faded as summer started heating up. The point was to keep it going with plans to broadcast live from bike races, but things just kind of got away from me. You know, no one said parenthood, elite level racing, and team management was a good idea, so I kind of fell victim to overextending myself a little bit. But I realized how much fun these are and that our scene kind of needs this promotion, so I'm happy to do a small part. We usually like to shout out to the week's big race winner, but it's been far too long. Instead, we're going to go ahead and give props to anyone who raced week in and week out this summer, or if you promoted a bike race. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our heart. Thanks for keeping it going. Road is not dead, and we will explore more of that topic on today's podcast. As always, if you have questions, please email me at podcast at 1k2go.com. That's podcast at the number one, the letter K, two, geo.com and make sure to follow us on instagram where our handle is at 1k to go on today's episode we go a bit dark it turns out that a couple of guys with a couple of beers can fall into a rabbit hole of sorts but the point is to talk about an industry that we all care about maybe our unscientific and unsubstantiated view can spark some more conversation that will hopefully lead to road cycling trending up and to the right again until then keep on rolling and as my guest says any riding is good riding let's just see where we land Listeners, it has been a while, and I want to first apologize for taking so long to put another one of these podcasts out. So it was really difficult to kind of come up with a um, a, a rhythm as the race season unfolded. But we're back, and I'm really excited about today's guest. So I fact checked all of this, and in order to introduce my guest properly, I'm going to kind of do what he's done to me for the past number of years at bike races. So. Here we go. This is all factual. None of this is embellished because you don't embellish at all. None of this is made up. This is exactly how it goes. So this gentleman was a staff writer for Bicycling Magazine, right? If you checked his LinkedIn, he's also a patent agent and principal. And he also has a company called Green Mountain L- or, uh, Innovations LLC and self-proclaimed bicycle expert witness. But not only that, but I think that you're also the inventor of the power meter and and the promoter of the greatest race ever known to man, which is the Longjoe Classic. So I want to introduce everybody to Mr. Alan Cote. So Alan, welcome to the podcast. Did I get all of that right? I think you did, Bobby, more or less. It's, it's close enough. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So I was hoping you would refute some of that. Well, I, I would not say the Longjoe Classic is the greatest bike race in the world, but it is a good bike race, and it was made better by your outstanding win in <laughs> Worcester uh, a few years back, which I, I still, to this day, it was the most exciting mm. final two laps for a bike race I've ever seen. I've been around the scene for 30 years. You beating Brad Huff on the line in Worcester, I'll never forget it, Bobby. Uh, that's awesome. Well, you know, I was really, I tried to cue it up for you. I wanted you to refute some of that stuff, right? Because I don't know, did you actually invent the power meter? I didn't invent, I, I was not the first person to make All a power right. meter, no. But I was I was, um, I was, was kind of a pioneer in power yeah. measurement. So back in the late 1990s, um, I saw it. The only one making it prior to me was SRM. And yeah. then I said, hey, we got to do this. And um, that's a long story, maybe a subject for another podcast. But yeah, okay. I did a bunch of work in power measurement. All right, good. Well, because the truth of the matter is, is uh, 
you don't always get it right when you call me up, right? So <laughs> not a police officer anymore. I don't, I don't know what else uh, you guys threw out there, but it's always fun because I think like what you bring to the scene, and this is for the listeners, is a ton of personality. Um, and you actually provide a lot of the riders with a ton of personality when you're announcing them. So I guess I didn't mention that you're also, you know, pretty much uh, one of the voices at a lot of the major bike races as an announcer. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, probably my primary identity in the cycling world these days is as a race announcer. So, you know, I hit races around the Northeast and, um, you know, I love kind of hamming it up. Like, I know you haven't been a policeman for years, but <laughs> it just sounds so fun to tell the crowd, Bobby Bailey, the policeman. So, yeah, we, we try to have fun with it when we're announcing yeah. and... Um, and yeah good good well like i said i think that um if, if anybody who listens to the podcast know that we keep it around 45 minutes to an hour but like alan said i think that if we ever broke apart some of the things that i'd love to talk to you about and get like full disclosure on or your full opinion on it might be a, a couple part segment so hey maybe we'll bring that to uh to the table but there's a couple topics that i think are really hot right now that i really want to have a discussion with you um on and the first one is we're within two weeks of probably the biggest bike race that, that we have in Vermont, right? And that's the, the Green Mountain Stage Race. And so um, interesting to kind of cue up this topic is, is that, you know, here we go, social media, right? Uh, somebody posted something about uh, the fact that Rasputitsa, one of the, the biggest gravel events in the country, has now announced that in 2019 they want to put on a a gravel stage race on the same weekend of GMSR. And without getting into like that too, too much, I mean, I think the idea here is that we want to talk about GMSR within two weeks of it, but I think there's a lot of concern because because numbers are just down. And actually, um, I was really actually kind of concerned about my announcement to our, our little Burlington and Chittenden County-based Vermont cycling public was that, um, I have to admit, I, I wasn't going to do the, the stage race this year. And it's kind of a big deal, right? Like, you know, to have a, a race sponsored by one of our sponsors with dealer.com, basically in my backyard, something that I've, you know, always loved and looked forward to doing because all my friends and families come out and then I wasn't going to do it. But then fast or yeah, I guess rewind to maybe a day or two ago, the announcement that my current category, the 40 plus, uh, is canceled just due to attendance. So if you could, man, like, I mean, I just want to kick it off with that because I want to hear what you think about, like, what is going on with road that a big race weekend in our own hometown um, on an awesome four-day weekend is not getting the draw or the numbers? Yeah, it, it's a great question, Bobby, and it, it's by no means unique to Vermont or unique to the Green Mountain Stage Race. You know, we're seeing numbers in road cycling. They've just nosedived over the last, say, five years or so. And um, when I was at uh, World Championships in Richmond a few years back, I um, was chatting with Derek Bouchard-Hall, who's CEO of USA Cycling, um, you know, old, uh, old racing comrade of mine. We rode many races together, and, and he was giving me just some numbers on how much, um, not so much licensees had declined, but how much racer days had declined, how many, how many entries in road races sure. through the year had gone down. And in that year, it had gone down by twenty percent. So is that is that by the individual, or when you look at like the total, like like are racers on average doing twenty percent less, or when you look at like the grand total, just entries and number of races? So so not number of events, not number of racers, but number of of days of of entries um, in bike races for the whole year. Mm -hmm. So that was down by twenty percent. And you think about it, if you operate a business, 
if your business was down 20% from one year to the next, like that's a five alarm fire. Like that's a huge deal. So I don't have more current numbers than that. I was going to look them up before the podcast didn't get to it, but clearly road numbers are way down. And, you know, I don't think anybody knows the exact reason for that. There's, there's a bunch of, of, you know, good theories banging around. One is, um, that, you know, road, everyone seems to feel more and more endangered on the road every time you go out. You know, I got myself a really bright blinky light last year and, you know, my wife is the same way. Everyone kind of feels like they're going to get killed on the road and and that's not a great thing for road cycling. Um, And that's certainly independent of, of, of bike racing. But at the same time, and what we're going to get into more in the podcast is the rise of gravel. So with gravel events, I think you kind of have two things going. One is that people can feel um, like they're not going to get smacked by a car because they're on gravel roads. Mm-hmm. And the other is it's just the nature of these gravel events, as we'll talk about more, is a little more inclusive. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's what's drawing riders away from road into the gravel scene. Yeah, I, I think they're all really good points. If you, if you know, listeners have listened to my other podcast, you know, we did one at the uh, the Muddy Onion, and we've done some talks with um, Ansel Dickey and Pete Ballers, and of course John Spinney. And yeah, let's face it, gravel's good, right? And and it's on the up, and we'll talk about that. But like, I think being such a hardcore roadie that, and, and I admit to that, like, I wanna I wanna make sure that we do, I think, due diligence to the road scene and kind of dig into it a little bit. And and you know, we talked about safety. I think that's huge, right? And so you know, but that doesn't necessarily encompass the racing because racing still presents you with a closed course, you know, closed course format on roads that you're protected by, you know, either state troopers or rolling enclosure or whatever it may be. But, you know, is GMSR a, a victim of the scene or has GMSR as an example, and, and as the promoter, obviously, of Longjoe, you know, and, and Fitchburg, you know, you're up against the same thing. Is there anything that the race promoters or the races are doing or not doing that's lending to the decline, right? Because we talked about, like, races are expensive. They weren't always that way. No, and, and I think you get to a good point, which is that um, road cycling is sort of in this, I hate to use such a strong word, but in kind of a death spiral. Yeah. You look at, right now, I just pulled up, right now GMSR, as of tonight, has 439 entries pre-registered, and of, of which, um, you know, 14 of those are for the kids' event, so yeah. knock that off, right? So we're at like 425 entries. GMSR used to have a, between 900 and 1,000 entries. The expenses are the same or probably a little higher than they've ever been. Every year, things get more expensive. So how is the race going to get paid for? Entry fees are going to have to go up. So if you have half the field, more or less the entry fees double. Mm -hmm. Entry fees double, it's going to drive more people away. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a death spiral in that, you know, it it gets more expensive. So fewer people race and then fewer people race and it has to be more expensive. Yeah, well... I get that, and I'm, I'll give you my I'll give you my salty racer counterpoint to that though is that get it expenses go up right so entry fees go up but at what point does the promoter say you know what I've got to do to kind of sweep some of this expense under the rug is I've got to increase the experience and it's my fear as somebody who's a big proponent of sponsor villages and uh, races with central locations and the experience that promoters aren't doing a great job of that so. Yeah, you've got to increase your entry fees, but I kind of feel like it's also your responsibility to increase that experience, and and I don't see that, you know. And that's like, you know, when you say expenses, I think GMSR as an example, I think it was three hundred dollars, right, for four days of racing, depending how early you register. Depending yes. how early you register, right? Um, I'll say this: Rasputitsa, I think, was a hundred and fifty, but that's one day of racing, and that's you know, you would say that's more expensive than GMSR, but what do you get for it? 
a band, a barbecue, a scene, a sponsor village, a sense of community. And like, I don't, I'm not trying to make this negative, but I feel as though that might be something that's always been missing from the road scene. Now, now, Crits have always had that. And I'll give you know, obviously, Longshow and Fitchburg has done a great job of doing that. Like, my thing is, is if you're going to go and have a miserable day on the bike, you got to have something that's worth <laughs> going to. And let's face it, our sport can be miserable. I've had a couple miserable days on the bike that I'm like, why do I do this? And sometimes it's made better by the fact that I get to hang out under the tent with all of my teammates or friends that I haven't seen in a while or a food truck. Um, so I guess my question is, is like, you know, what can road do? to minimize the fact that it's a bloody hard sport of suffering that requires a super sharp edge of fitness. And if you don't have it, you're off the back and you're miserable, you know? Well, I think you just hit hit the nail on the head there, Bobby. And, and there's no easy answer. It's because, you know, road cycling is, it's a harsh sport. The idea is, is that you drop the other riders, ideally right. one by one, so they can't even work together. Right. You know, that, that's, it, it ends up making for, kind of a tough day for a lot of people you know yeah there's no friends out there there's no friends and a majority of riders finish a road race maybe not feeling that great about their day you know how did i drive all this way right fall outside of the envelope yep and just do a group ride or a solo effort yeah and and you know when you get dropped from a pack you know there may have been half the field may have been dropped before you but if you're dropped you feel like you're the first one and you're the only one and it's incredibly discouraging it's happened to all of us yeah everyone straight up to uh to chris Froome has been dropped in a race yeah and you know what it feels like so that's kind of one of the inherent tough things of road racing and there's no easy way around that but that's never changed that's always been the sport it's not as if the the sport uh you know in the bright times of lance armstrong and you know all of those high notes the one thing that was constant was the racing was hard. You raced because it was hard. And there was a personal challenge. Uh, yeah, I talked to, I talked to our, our friend Steve Francisco, right? And kills me that I mentioned him. I always mention him in the podcast because I value his opinion, but he's so salty. Um, <laughs> is that, uh, what was my point? Ah, totally forgot it. What were we talking about? So, so the, the hardness of road racing, Robbie, I, I oh, think. Oh, the progression. Yeah. Yeah. And so he and I used to talk about it. Like we didn't necessarily enjoy the training or always enjoy the racing. What Steve and I used to sit up at night in our stupid altitude tents texting each other at one o'clock in the morning because we were all hopped up on NOS and monster energy drinks before a time trial was the progression of I'm not that great in the spring and I put in my time and I get better and I feel like garbage at you know bat and kill but I start feeling good by Sunapi and I'm untouchable by crit week. You know, and it wasn't because we, it was the enjoyable bike rides we did. It was that progression and that's always been there, you know? And so, you know, I guess you kind of look for a reason to do it, but that's, I guess, has never changed. I think, you know, what has changed is, um, you know, well, I guess I don't know because we're trying to figure out what could add to the sport. Well, I think one of the things that's changed is that, you know, five or 10 years ago, there really wasn't much of an alternative. You mm-hmm. could do your disease rides, you could do, um, you could do point, other yeah. things, but there wasn't that sort of semi-competitive outlet yeah. that we have now with gravel where, yeah. you know, um, we're all going to head to Peter Voller's uh, um, Vermont Overland race this weekend. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to ride it not really as a race. I'm going to yeah. kind of cruise it and I'm probably not going to stop at the food stops, but I'm not going to necessarily try to hang with the front group. I'm yeah. just going to go out and have a good ride. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to have a good time. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, 
And I think that's kind of the gravel events have sort of filled this missing piece of, of kind of people's cycling needs where, you know, mm-hmm. previously there had, you would only have this very competitive outlet or you'd have had the completely non-competitive yeah. outlet of century rides. Mm-hmm. You kind of have something in between. You can make it a ride. You can right. make it a race. You can start and say, I'm going to race this. And then you get it part way into it. And you're like, you know what? I'm not going to race this. I'm going to go with the food stops right. and I'm, I'm and, just going to cruise. And it. nobody's pulling you. That's you right. Know, Nobody's yeah. pulling you. There's no officials right. um, you, yelling at you. You've um, officially entered into the from the front group to the experiential side, and some would argue that that's just as good. That's right. Know? So, so here's a, a question then for you. Um, one of the topics that was brought up on this Facebook thread about you know why is Raspatista doing this, right? And I actually even texted you about it, and I was like, look, man, I said, even Raspatista came back and said, fact. 17 total people, I think that was the number, overlapped or that are signed up for GMSR have ever done one of the Rasputista events, right? Right. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, God, like Rasputista just put an end to this. Like, mic drop, like, leave us alone. We can do whatever we want. But then I got to thinking about it and somebody actually said, I'm less concerned about the overlap. And maybe it was you that said, I'm more concerned about the tan- the intangible effect that it's going to have and i exactly. got to thinking about that and, exactly you know at one point i, I did say this and, and I, I don't mind being honest about it i said i said i felt like gmsr was one close good optional way for me not wanting to race it right <laughs> and i feel like now even though it's a completely different genre genre of racing there's now a good option so even though there were only 17 people ever that overlapped now you have an option right and with Rasputitsa so like tell me how you feel about like do you think that now that there's an option that's going to have an impact on GMSR and 17 is going to increase significantly yeah well I guess I would start by saying nobody knows and um one thing I would caution on that that stat from Rasputitsa about only 17 people overlapping you know they looked at pre-registration several weeks out you know they're very well maybe more overlap going forward And, and I guess the larger point, and, and this is what you brought up, Bobby, is that there may only be 17 people overlapping, but there's sort of a whole ecosystem of cycling, of riders and events. And you need riders to feed the events. You need events to serve the riders. Mm-hmm. And those kind of all have to go together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love the idea of Rasputitsa doing a, a dirt stage race. I think it's fantastic. I just wish they wouldn't do it that weekend. Yeah. If they did it the last weekend of July, mm-hmm. I think you could have riders, maybe who are going to do GMSR, like, you know, do use that as prep. What's better stage race prep totally. than a stage race, right? Yeah. So you might conceivably have people doing that. Yeah. And then... And we um, certainly have a gap for stage races, right? There's not a lot anymore. That's, you know, other than Killington and GMSR, there's nothing in the Northeast. Um, right. And... All right. So, so like GMSR, right? And I think we... we and one of the things that you and I talked about is like, let's not dwell too much on either the past or the negative. Let's talk about like what we want to see out of this sport. And, and me personally... I want to see GMSR and, and the Burlington Crit be the biggest stage race, you know, known to the Northeast. Because in the past, it used to be Killington, Fitchburg, which was a stage race. Right. And then the evolution of the, the Green Mountain Road Race weekend, weekend with the Burlington Crit. And now we've got a legit stage race. So we owe it <clears throat> to our road cycling roots, or at least how I feel, to talk about, like, what we could do to make it better. And so if you were... Having a conversation with Gary Kessler, um, who we owe a lot to for putting this thing on, 
year after year after year after year. Um, and we know that it's difficult and expensive. So, you know, thank you to Gary for doing that. But if, if we could both come up with, let's say two or three things that we would like to share that could actually help move the needle a little bit on either the race or the race experience or the, the future of, you know, getting entries back up, like, what would you say? Yeah, boy, that, that's a tough one, Bobby. I mean, um, I think one of the matters is that right now GMSR, it has almost a national draw. You look at right. the entries and international, international, um, <laughs> lots close of to Canada, typically 20% of the entries are from Canada, right. which is, is crazy. Um, but then you have juniors and masters, um, and women flying in from all over the country because, um, part of it is, is a big credit to Vermont. There's very few places you can do an amateur stage race with big mountain climbs and, and we have it here in Vermont. So yeah. there's that natural terrain, but um, you know, beyond the racing, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have any specific answers to that, um, except that um, you know it's expensive, and I don't begrudge um, the Green Mountain Stage Race what its entry fee is because they have to pay their expenses. Yeah. But um, there's kind of you know no way around the fact that that probably makes it difficult for riders to attend, yeah. um, and there's no easy solutions there. Yeah. All right. Any others? Like, what would you? What would? What? What did you guys find with? You know, Worcester, Lemonster, Fitchburg. Um, what did you find that actually was like one of those things that you could just do, you, you couldn't do without from an experience standpoint? Because, I, you know, I'll give it a toot your own horn for you here is that weekend is everything. I mean, and, and it's in a package of, you know, Fitchburg's a little bit rough on the edges. The Lemonster, like stick to the parking lot and your race, right? <laughs> like, let's, let's call it what it is. But, there's nothing more exciting than what's going on on that four or five corner crit course for each of those nights. And there's nowhere else that I'm a crit guy, but that's that where is where I nowhere else I'd want to be. And I have a feeling that I speak for a lot of racers that, and I'm going to maybe tee this up, but that tiny little festival is what's going on in that time right then. And we want to be there, and we don't want to just kind of get get in and get out. Like the energy is the kind of that crescendo of racers showing up for that elite race right but gmsr does not have that except for the burlington crit right and you know kind of by nature when you're doing a road race out on on vermont's mountains Mm -hmm. you know you're never you're not going to get an alp duez sized crowd out there it's sort of a a little contradictory and that people want to race in the mountains they they savor that that's where they come from all over the country because there's so few opportunities to ride like that but at the same time that's always going to be a rider experience it's not gonna be a crowd experience um, so I think those are, you bring up a, a good point, but they're, they're somewhat exclusionary. You come to GMSR for the, the tough stages, right. the one stage where there's a lot of excitement and, and yeah. spectators is, is the crit. But do we do a disservice to our racing potential if we don't try to interweave an experience that allows me to bring Tiffany and the girls up to Vermont for the weekend and actually have them enjoy themselves rather than just be like, oh, God, go do your bike racing thing and we'll see you on Monday for the crit. Right. So is there something that we could do better? Yeah. Again, it's a good question. You know, um, and I think that this really ties in well to to a gravel stage race. So yeah, the success of the gravel events have been tremendous, but they're one day events. Mm-hmm. So you come up and you do them. Um, but will a gravel stage race have those kind of things that you're talking about? Or are they going to be kind of a lot of bored families for two days mm. um, as things finish? Again, no easy answers there, Bobby, but, um, you know, I guess the, the, the short of it is that um, 
we need to attract more riders. So uh, it, it's a good question, and it's maybe one that you know needs to be answered a bit through through surveying riders and yeah. finding out what it is they want. Yeah. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out here. This is because this is this is my my opinion on it. Um, because I've been able to do a lot of of stage races and whatnot, and I'd say like the one thing and and. You know, I'd love to have a sit down and talk with Gary on this or, or the race promoters. And I'm going to throw this out there also that I'm not a race promoter. I've actually tried to like drive from Massachusetts back at a race and try to figure out the expenses, times the entries, <laughs> times the, the cost of entry. And I know that my old profession, you know, police work costs a lot when you're paying the overtime rate. You need 12 to 15 state troopers times three different races, whatever it may be. So I'm not a race promoter and I have nothing but respect for race promoters. But last year... I'll say this, I wish I would have written this down, but I drove more to get to the races at my hometown backyard race than I did for any other race that I did to. Doubled the mileage that I was racing, and it was more driving than even going down to the, the Longshore series. So what I compare that to are the old days of Killington, um, where everybody stayed at the base lodge because all the races kind of started there except for the crit or the old days of Longshore, the old best Western, right? The best Western time right. trial. Right. And that provides a bit of a sanctuary for racers and their, their teams and their spouses and families. Um, and it definitely doubles up on that experience because if you can enjoy, I mean, I remember you'd roll up and the Saturn team van was out there and sure. the Mercury van. And as a, as a new cat one too, I was in awe of the guy with the pressure washer getting the TT bike <laughs> set up. And that was just the scene. And, you know, I, I am a bit nostalgic for that, but I wish we could get that back, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, it's, it's sort of a, a whole bunch of things contributing to the, the changes in racing because, you know, some of the th things you talk about, like with Longshore Race being, you know, centered out of that hotel, you had a thousand riders in that yeah. race back then. And that gave basically gave you the money to be a little more flexible sure. with things. Um, and now, as as numbers have declined, um, you know, it it just makes the budgets tighter yeah. and makes executing things tighter. Yeah. Um, and as an example, last year, just um, I agree with you. There was a, a tremendous amount of driving last year for the uh, for the Green Mountain Stage Race, but it's almost a miracle the race happened because there were these unexpected construction right. projects and um, the fact that it was sort of stuck together. Um, you know, I didn't know all the details of it, but I, uh, you know, did talk to Gary Kessler a number of times and, um, it's frankly amazing. He was able to stick together at all. And yeah. it kind of, I think underscores the fact that so many events are not, um, put on by some sort of large organization, um, some big money-making scheme. They basically come down to one person. Yeah. The Green Mountain Stage Race is one guy who yeah. wants to do it. The Longstair Race has been myself and Don Injimi yeah. kind of spearheading it. It really comes down to just a few people saying, we're going to make sure this race happens yeah. and exactly the direction of it. You know, sometimes, um, you know, it takes, it, you know, it, it takes a backseat. Um, the, the, the kind of polishing it takes a backseat to just making sure that just it happens at all. It yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's a great point. And I, th I think that like, I want to make sure that, you know, if anybody's taking offense, listening to this, that, I don't know, maybe my role has changed a little bit in the cycling world and I would love to have a sit down, candid conversation at some point. And I know we've offered, so, you know, I think we should leave it at this is that GMSR, as an example, um, is an amazing race. It's an amazing opportunity for people to come to Vermont and do something that's truly 
you know, if you're if you if you're into this sort of thing, it's a painful event, and you have to be so sharp. And all of the hard work that you put in the summer, and all of the training, and all the races building up to that, really, it, it, it matters at GMSR. Um, and you can come up and have a great time racing in, in what are some of the most beautiful roads that we train on, as well as probably one of the most happening downtown crits. So, um, you know, I'll leave this like if you haven't registered yet. Please register. Please come up. It's always a beautiful, crisp fall weekend. Um, and I think we should just be grateful for that. But, you know, you brought up a really good point, And we use GMSR because it's in our own backyard here. Um, but let's think about cycling as a whole. Uh, and one of the things, and again, this thread spawned so many conversations that, uh, you know, social media is, is responsible for kind of stoking this conversation. But one of the things that somebody brought up was like, hey, it's not just cycling, right? It's sport in general. So, you know, and, and I don't know if you have anything to, to offer to this, but I think, you know, you've got two athletic daughters, which is awesome. You know, they're not chasing Pokemon with their phones. They're actually going to cross-country practice and they're skiing and whatnot. But when a sport like football or soccer or baseball is no longer drawing enough kids for their entire roster, then it's only inevitable that cycling is also going to suffer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, all sports, from from my understanding as well, are seeing some declining numbers, and and you know, it's such a period of kind of change for all of us. You know, social media and and you know the ever present flat screen is kind of changing the way people interact, changing kind of pe- what people do with their time, and you know, we're um, very much in the adolescence of that. We don't really know where it's going to go, yeah. um, and it's it's a really good point for you to bring up, Bobby, and and. Um, Certainly here in our podcast, we're not going to have any answers to that, but it's, it's something for people to think about. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'll admit to it. If I could offer something like the number of times I've been sitting on the couch, you know, waiting for my coffee to kick in or whatever it is. And I'm on the, fo- on the phone, not Instagram or doing what I do. And, and Tiffany said, like, those are minutes wasted that you could be riding, you know, like I can't right. tell you the number of times she's told me that, but Um, I'll also say this, and I think this is actually a good segue into something that you wanted to talk about is the impact of social media on what's happening in our sport. And you actually came to me, I think with more of a like, social media, like what is going on with this, like a negative approach. So kind of explain like what your thoughts are on this. Well, you know, um, I, you know, I'm certainly not trying to be a, you know, a curmudgeon and say social media is bad. Social media has, has some great things to offer, but you know, there's a flip side to it as well. You know, coming from a background where, you know, in the 1990s and um, in the years that followed as well, you know, I was a reporter for, for Bicycling, for Velenews, for Winning Magazine, for Bicycle Guide, kind of for all those publications. And, you know, I was, I was how you got race information. I would go to a race. A lot of times I'd ride the race and then give a report. I'd get quotes from the riders. And that's kind of how you found out. You'd look, you'd look at Velenews, whether in the print or the later the online edition, to look at results right. and figure out what happened. And now... You look at a publication like Vela News, they don't cover domestic cycling essentially at all. Right. And shame um, on them. I mean they, they, they got they got bandwidth, right? Somebody could be user submitted. They could. I mean there's there's a lot of challenges to publishing right now as well. Yeah. Um, you know, those guys, much like our local newspapers, kind of face their own, you know, economic challenges of, of trying to get revenue in a digital age. Mm-hmm. So um I while I agree with you, at the same time there's some realities they're facing in terms of, of um of you know how their publishing model works that makes it challenging for them to get local race results out but you know now for local race results you kind of look where do you look on a monday morning you look at, at maybe roadresults.com or bikeredge.com and and see what results are posted 
And then you kind of look at social media and you kind of gather people's stories. Oh, I flatted. Oh, I had a great ride, etc. But there's not really a central reporting voice anymore. And that's both a good and a bad thing because we can get people's stories directly from them unfiltered, which has tremendous value. But at the same time, um, there's a kind of a lack of, of quality and accountability of having a professional Sure. reporter out there telling you what happened and getting unbiased objectively yeah. you know saying well right. actually that guy didn't crash out in the last right. last lap he you know he sat up or, oh, yeah. or whatever the problem is i won't mention names but like when you would get somebody to talk about a race the same race you were in and you're like what freaking race were you in yeah exactly you know? exactly and so you know it's yeah. you're right you need an objective voice to kind of talk about the tail of the tape right like what happened that's right and and that doesn't really exist anymore and, and Again, we can't put the genie back in the bottle with social media. It has some tremendous things to offer, but you know we've gained a lot of things with social media, but we've also lost some things, and and I think that's worth acknowledging. Um, you know, in particular as a race promoter right now, you know, um, with the Longstreet Classic, I would get these sometimes um, strong opinions as to how the race should be run, and. You, you know, if you're operating an event, you always need to listen to what people want. And, and I certainly appreciate right. that at the same time. Um, and this is by no means unique to bike racing. This is across the social media spectrum, whether it's politics, um, you know, regardless of what you look at, you know, sort of some voices can end up being overly loud sure. and um, and kind of have a greater presence than, than they probably should. Yeah. So that's something we kind of have to mind out there. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up because obviously I work in the social media industry um, with my day job. And so there's one thing that I coined, and if all six of you listeners out there don't try to steal this because I use it every time I talk to one of our clients, is online sentiment should lead to operational change, right? And so that's with a grain of salt. So there's going to be a mouthpiece. There's going to be a voice. There's somebody that's going to get their opinion and their girlfriend's opinion and then their uncles and their brothers all weighing in and whether or not you can give credit to that. But something also has to be said that that consistent sentiment as a promoter, as a dealership, as a bike racer, if there's consistent sentiment towards a particular operational aspect, it's worth investigating whether or not there should be change or not. And so, you know, you do come to the table with, you know, jokingly that old curmudgeon attitude about it. But I will say this is that you know, again, a personal story of, you know, what I've tried to accomplish with my cycling team is there are days and there are years even, and I would say 2018 was one of them, is that you don't put it all together with your training and your race results and your sponsorship. And, you know, I'll say this too. I mean, it's like pulling teeth just to get teammates to, to retweet or to like or to say something. And there's great value in that. And so, when you're not having a great year and you don't have a lot of great stories to tell and you can't report back that you won this race, social media replaces a lot of that that sponsorship value that used to come out of just being an elite team with victories. And that never sure, always stood sure. on its own. But, you know, there's a lot of positive that has come out of social media. You know, and I joke about like, you know, when it's the long show weekend or when it's time for GMSR 2018 hashtag, the race really... If you ask me from a, you know, put my, my team owner hat on, the race really should be is who's putting the most content out there to promote the race and their team. And I would love, like, 
that weekend was like, oh God, get me back to service because I want to <laughs> just click on GMSR 2018 and see who's doing what because that and that content drive is actually way more valuable than, hey, I won whatever because that's that's over with and done with. And so, I don't know, there's great value in social media and I think that's actually um, and has enabled teams to not have a website um, to still be able to push their content out there and to provide added value to their sponsorship that is probably searching for a pretty hard to find ROI, you know? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you on, on the, this tremendous value to social media, tremendous positive. Um, you know, there is kind of a, it's not so much what social media has done, but kind of what we've lost in the, in the process, um, that kind of objective reporting and, and kind of a, a central portal for some information. You know, you look back to, you may recall the Ride magazine, yeah. um, which Richard Freeze, yeah, um, co-announcer for me at many events, published. But that was kind of, you know, again, we're going back to a, a pre-digital age and, and we'll never go back to that now. But at the same time, there was sort of a central portal of information yeah. um, in Velo News on a national scale. And I don't want to take away from social media in any way, but we're lacking that now. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, that's sort of an unintended consequence of social media that that's we have we have to we have to work with um and as you say there's tremendous benefits to it as well well there's something we've lost i think the the thing is too is um let's say it like social media is really all about the me 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 right or right one kid go sports racing did this dealer.com cycling team did this me 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 and you get that personal perspective and yeah we do a great job of blasting out only our sponsors but i think you actually bring up a really good point and potential opportunity is if there's somebody that could harness all of that and say, listen, I'm dedicated to social media for the entire organization, you know, Nebra or right. the race promoter or like, let's take the ease. I mean, like you and I are doing a podcast right now on $200 worth of microphone equipment and in a laptop that I already had. So if you could take that same approach with social media and reporting, yeah, you got to make sure the quality's there, but we could do our scene a lot of favors if we just focused on that, you know, using social media to promote what it is that we're doing, because there's a good story to be told. Um, and I don't necessarily know the answer, but I think that there needs to be some sort of consolidation of efforts and it can't just be, you know, a forum for bitching. And sometimes it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, um, you know, it can be a forum for bitching. There's tremendous value in it as, as you said as well. Um, but again, I'll just go back to kind of the, um, looking at what we've gained through social media, which is a lot, but also looking at what we've lost, which is um, kind of that centralized objective reporting, um, which is, um, is, you know, again, by no means unique to the, uh, to the bike industry or the, or the bike racing world. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, some good takeaways from it. I mean, I love talking social, obviously, because I think that, you know, again, a lot of my frustrations with promoting a team come from the fact that you have 40 unique voices and only three of them are actually using them. So, you right. know, and, and, and it's not as if you're asking too much of people, right? So, like, you know, I've tried to do the social media guidelines with the team and say, hey, here's what you could be doing. Like, very little effort while you're on the throne using your squatty potty. Like, like what it is I'm putting on Instagram because it's not just the Bobby Bailey show. It's what I'm trying to represent with the organization. So, Team Racers, if you're listening, I'm still fed up. <laughs> I think you guys need to step up your social media game. Because, you know, if you use it for the positive, great things come. And that's, like, amazing to be able to click on a hashtag and tell a sponsor like Garneau or Factor, like, hey, we have generated hundreds of pieces of content related to your business because our team is grateful for it. And so 
Step up your game, people. It's definitely a thing. But let's use that as a segue to a, a segment of the sport that has stepped up its game, um, that has used social media, that has definitely brought both the online and on-site party to cycling, and that's gravel. Ugh, God, gravel. I remember like, the first time I talked to John Spinney about this, I was like, all right, dude, fine. Like, We'll talk about gravel. I'm not doing this like out of like my desire to chat about gravel. But I will say... I'm a believer, man. Frankly, I, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking, willingly talking to you about gravel. <laughs> you were you were one of the the long holdouts. Um, you know, when I moved to Vermont 11 years ago, you know, I immediately just started riding on dirt roads. I'm like, these are great. I'm a, not necessarily you, but at that time, a lot of riders were like, you can't go in the dirt. You're playing. No, not like, me. That's wrong. I'll tell you right that's now, wrong, I'd you rather know? turn circles of Water Tower Hill than ride gravel. That's right. And and now, of course, gravel is is the hip thing. Um, so um, things have changed a lot in really not even the last 10 years but in the last five years yeah and um and i think actually we're all better for it you know i, I may be so. a, we're safer we're safer i'm a long time roadie but as as i said to you um kind of before we started the podcast i love all kinds of cycling True. whether it's road whether it's gravel cross mountain bike commuting if you're on a bike i love it Amen. um it's all good and and that's kind of my takeaway from the podcast is just get in your bike enjoy it however you like right. And right now, a lot of people are, are enjoying gravel, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because you, it probably goes back to maybe a year or two ago. Um, I was all about the roads right from my house, right? And so we're like, we're coming to you live from one k to go service course here <laughs> in Essex, Vermont. And so, you know, I've lived here for 20 years, and I've ridden these roads, and I'm okay with the fact that, like, I, and I just realized that on Strava, you can actually say like, you know, number of attempts of this segment. Like if you just, if you turn my training rides into a segment, there's probably thousands of times I've just done the same thing over and over again. It's a great formula, right? Like I know this is 40 miles, this is 60 miles, this is 100 miles, this one has hills and efforts. And so I do the same things over and over again. And what I realized was, well, I stopped riding with headphones because I was scared. Um, I had a couple incidents where I actually got into physical altercations with, with motorists. Um, Franny, you were there for one of them, sketchy as shit, uh, a beast of a kid squared off with me. Um, just bad things that have kind of like made me realize that I don't get the same euphoric feel of the wind through my hair riding on the roads, right? It became dangerous and then enter gravel and I'll go out and ride at night with headphones in and lights and have a great training ride and only see a car or two. And so, um, you know, so from this super focused roadie to the masses, like gravel is pretty much my primary mode of training. And I don't think it's as good as training for a road race on a road bike, but it gets the job done and I get to come home at night because I'm not, you know, scared out of my mind from a vehicle. So it's definitely on the rise. So what other than, you know, the safety and, and the, um, I think the availability of events. What do you think ra- gravel's doing well that we should take a look at? Well, you know, I think the big thing with gravel, obviously there's, there's kind of the safety element as you just talked about, yeah. but I'll make a comparison to running a marathon. So um, with a marathon, anybody can go out and run it. You've got guys who are out there running 215s who are, right. who are at the front. You've also got people who are running five or six hour marathons mm-hmm. and then a whole spectrum of people in between. And you know what? Everybody kind of finishes the day with a story. Right. And they, you know, maybe they beat a PR. Maybe they were with a group and pulled ahead at the end. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, there's a whole spectrum of, of ability, experience, of fitness levels. They all have a good, a good story at the end. 
And I think gravel is kind of analogous to that, where you can go out, the ride blows to pieces. You can start with 500 people, and the first finishers, like at Vermont Overland this weekend, the first finishers may come in in two and a half hours yeah. or less. The last finishers will come in at six hours. But everyone along there ends up having a good story. And, you know, road racing, you know, it's a tougher sport. Same it's, old story. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's just by its nature. It's, um, it's, it's a harsh sport. And, um, you know, gravel is just much more inclusive and allows, I think, more people to kind of have a good day out there. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing for cycling. Yeah. And you have to be prepared just as much for gravel. You know, it throws in a couple different dimensions of preparation and equipment. You got to kind of be ready to rock and roll, which actually leads me to a funny story. Remember that gravel ride we took you on? You didn't come prepared? Well, I was I was ill-informed as to what was happening, but uh, yeah. Because you, you don't believe in social media, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was all over the, the, the social media channels. So, the, so the to groups. clue in our few listeners here, Wes, so what happened is we had a great gravel ride last fall, and... I showed up on this ride thinking it was all dirt roads with 32C, you know, slick tires. Yeah. Um, which, if you're on gravel roads, it's fine. But there was, though ironically, I crashed turning into a dirt parking lot <laughs> as a result of somebody in front of me crashing. So it was, right. it was really uh, just sort of a freakish thing. Gravel guru, I think that was spinning. The gravel it? guru crashes in front of me yeah. and then the, the you know. The, the, guy, the guy can't turn. I, I apparently not, you know. But um, so it was, it was sort of an oddball crash. I can't really... You know, it's my own fault, Spinny's own fault, but yeah, that's yeah. that. But that's not just part of racing bikes. Sometimes yeah. you just fall down. Yeah, yeah. It's so, good, um, um, so we, we we're planning another one of those. Just as a side note, Alan, that um, I got I got big hopes for a gravel event. Maybe this will evolve into something special, but it's going to be called "From Home Is Where I Roam," and I've got routes that I think all I'm going to need is maybe a porta potty in the backyard here. And we're going to leave from here, and I've got awesome sectors and and gravel and a mix of road. And it's going to start here and finish here. So stay tuned. That'll be, that'll be coming this fall. Well, I look forward to that, Bobby. And I also will tell you, I just picked up a set of um, Challenge uh, Almanzo tires. I have a little bit of tread, a little bit of side knobs good. on them. So good, good, maybe good. I'll put those on. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, rumor has it I actually have a new gravel bike coming. So uh, Josh Sachs, thank you. If you've got that thing dialed in, I can't wait to <laughs> shred on that. So, well, that's good stuff, man. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if anybody is interested, Vermont Overland, is right around the corner i think that we're probably probably maybe too far out for registration it is it, it is it's sold out quickly sold um, out sold out very quickly and but that's incredible to know that like you know an event that needs you know really no introduction but once it goes up it's it's starting to sell out pretty quickly which is pretty incredible so you know there are there are incredible options i think for people who want to get involved in a sport that yes you know i don't want to scare people with you know tales of alan getting all bloodied by our gravel rides because <laughs> It is kind of like a great mix of a mass start race, if you want it to be, or a personal challenge, or a time trial if you're going for a PR. And and I and I mean this is that if you're if you're listening, anybody with reasonable equipment um, and there's a broad spectrum built into that word, but can do an event like that. So you know if you've ever been interested in cycling, I'll say that you know maybe racing isn't immediately for you, but gravel definitely should be on your list of things to do. Yeah, and you know, just to kind of poke at Vermont over in a, a little bit more because it's it's an event that's um, it's kind of special to me. It, it's run by my old friend Peter Vollers. Yeah. We were college teammates. We actually uh, won a silver medal together at the uh, Collegiate National Team Time Trial Championships. Oh, nice. The first ever National Collegiate Champion Cycling Championships in mm-hmm. 1988 in San Luis Obispo. We were not there in um, 
for UMass. We got a uh, silver medal in the triple T. That's awesome. And of course, Vollers went on and rode as a pro and he won the, um, the collegiate national title as an individual the next year. So Vollers, he was, you know, he was a crit daddy. That was his name. Totally. And, um, I know you know, him well from, from crits. You know? Right. Tremendous bike rider, big personality guy. Um, and you look at how he's gone all the way from, you know, a pro crit rider and um, then, you know, helping form the uh, KMS, the Killington Mountain School uh, cycling right. team when awesome his program. son was involved. Fantastic bringing kids into the sport. But he's kind of gone all the way over now where I can't get him onto the pavement. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll text him and say we're doing a ride, whatever, let's connect. And he'll pretty much just stick to, to gravel now. So you have a guy who is the, the consummate crit daddy now kind of going pure gravel. And um, that's great for Pete. And he's having a, a successful event. But I think it kind of underscores the, the evolution of, uh, of cycling. Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to that. That's going to be an awesome time. And heading uh, down actually with you and Franny. So um, the chat that I had with uh, Franny last night was about how much room was in his cooler for a sip of sunshine, which I'm like, whatever, there's plenty of other options out there, but you know, he, <laughs> likes to, he likes to post up on his beer game. So um, we'll have some variety. It'll be awesome. We'll have a great ride to show for it. So, um, so I want to kind of rip something from the headlines and something that you and I talked about, uh, and this is about Jan Ulrich. And so for the listeners, you know, if you're, if you're into the podcast, cause we like to talk about local things, um, and you don't actually know about Jan Ulrich, um, you know, give a little bit of a background. Jan Ulrich was one of like the, one of the most talented European, he was German, uh, bike racers that ever kind of came onto the scene and, and blasted on the scene and just dominated the Tour de France, I think. I think it was 1997 that he won the tour and that year uh he won it by over nine minutes right and so just an immense talent that was probably you know maybe a little bit more overshadowed in the later years in, in the lance era right right but currently here's the headlines about jan ulrich right um Jan Ulrich uh, needs to deal with his past, but deserves a second chance. Jan Ulrich not dwelling in the past 20 years after his Tour de France victory. You know, Jan Ulrich suspended for drinking and driving. Jan Ulrich assaults a prostitute. Jan Ulrich breaking and entering into his neighbor. You know, the list just goes on. So currently, the policeman time, Bobby Bailey must be all over this. You, I, know? I, you know, I am, but I loved Jan Ulrich. And I actually, you know, whatever, Lance Armstrong doesn't know who I am, but... Um, I definitely follow him on social media, and, and one of the pictures that was recently posted was Lance Armstrong. The the reason for you know Jan Ulrich's you know lack of success in the later years flew to Germany to be with his friend, who's going through a pretty dark time right now. And I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of big because if anybody knows about dark times, whether it's his fault or not. It's Lance Armstrong, right? And so I actually posted something on social media and I was like, hey man, this is like really cool to see a guy that I respected um, being taken care of by, you know, his greatest competitor. Um, And I kind of even mentioned, I was like, look, all those years you were racing against Jan, I was rooting for Jan, right? I just thought he was an incredible talent. I kind of, part of me kind of felt bad for him, you know, (laughs) but he was a monster. He had huge thighs. I kind of dug his cadence, right? Much like mine, like turnover 75 (laughs) RPM. And, you know, the answer it is, is just throw more power at it. And so... Um, but it kind of made me start thinking about like, you know, cycling, you, you kind of are, are all in as a bike racer. And then at some point you kind of have an identity crisis. And so, you know, I think this is a great example of, you know, what people in our sport are going through when the sport's not great. Maybe it's time to just kind of move on or, or change shape a little bit. 
Well, yeah, I think it's an interesting point, Bobby, because it kind of ties into the whole decline of road racing right now. Right. You know, we're looking at, at road race numbers at, at half the number of entries we used to have. And then uh, there was just an article on, on Velo News recently about uh, United Healthcare. They are folding, it looks like. Oh, unless I didn't a, know that. Unless Jelly Belly. Jelly Belly's folding. Silver Cycling, the top oh. Canadian pro team, they're folding as well. And, um, you know, the. Uh, of course, there's going to be a lot of jobs that are lost in there as well. But along with that, Bobby, isn't just the teams, it's the events. Yeah. So um, what was the Nature Valley Grand Prix, also known as the North Star Race yeah. in Minnesota, didn't happen this year. Right. The Cascade Classic didn't happen this yeah. year. Um, the Philadelphia races, which we've known for years, um, which were just phenomenal events with hundreds of thousands of people out. Oh, yeah. The city loved it. That race has not happened in two years. Doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon. Um, the Tour of Alberta not happening. So, oh, so many events on the decline. On, yeah. yeah. And then you, you drive it down to the local level. You look at how many road events that were, you know, um, longtime events in New England are no longer going around, whether it's right down to a bread and butter race like the Sunapee race yeah. um, and, and many others. So, yeah. there's kind of been a decline in events. And, and it ties into what you're saying what do riders do? when they kind of move on to the next phase of their life. And that can be a very difficult transition. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that the, I mean, it was almost like, I was like, how do we bring this back to the positive, right? Like, you know, like we want to, we want to paint a positive picture here, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. And anytime you have an identity crisis, you don't really have an answer because you're kind of being pulled in two different directions. And so, you know, um, you know, I'll share this with the listeners. You know, I'm, I'm currently going through one, you know. Uh, you know, I've always been, I don't know, what do you call me for the area of the, the patron or whatever. You're, 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 you're the, yeah, you're the patron. You're, yeah, you're, you're, you're the, local, uh, the local guy. Yeah, and, and I love that, right? And like, you know, to say I love it is not an arrogant thing. It's a, it's a responsibility that I've taken very seriously you need, to, you need to step it up sometimes but you know I, you're doing a pretty good sure, job sure so. you know and, and i get that and well okay perfect point that you bring up is that if you take a look at what one kid go sports has done in the area at one point i was five coaches strong with five clients each right it was a great business i was the the dealer.com elite cycling team and we had all of the best racers in the area and we did amazing things like i think about what i've done and I should be good with that. But unfortunately, my racer mentality, just like I mentioned with training, is for us, everything is a progression. And at some point, progression halts. And as a racer, you're never good about, you're never happy with your last result. It's always the future of the next or the, the question of what you're going to do next. And I think as a racer and as somebody struggling with an identity crisis, I should just be able to say, you know what? I did all of those things. Those are all my palmares, right? Like those are, that's my... Resume, I'll throw that on LinkedIn. I'll be happy with it. And I'll forever have that legacy. I'll forever have Worcester. I'll forever <laughs> have Exeter, whatever it may be. But it doesn't matter the next year if you don't win it again. And and for a lot of racers, you know, I think the issue is, is that if you're not progressing, you're going backwards. And that's a tough thing to swallow as somebody charged with the responsibility of a team and or, you know, their personal desire to have results, you know. And so it's difficult. And so I, so I look at these these races and like you said one man show like why does gary kessler continue to put on gmsr i don't know he's not a racer i thank god he does right and so you know how do you keep progressing when it's not going exactly how you want it to go 
Yeah, it, it goes back to a quote that I heard long ago, which is to um, to age gracefully. Mm-hmm. You know, things are going to change, and they're they're going to change no matter what. And hopefully, you, know, you can adapt um, to kind of what your role should be as as um, as you progress in life. And you know, sometimes it, it's kind of funny, Bobby, because I, I think to myself, well, I think road racing is on the decline, and I'll, I'll throw you in this as well. It's on the decline specifically for guys like you and me, mm-hmm. so that we can fade out of the road scene and not not think we're missing out on anything it's it's yeah. we're, we're kind of aging with it um but you know there's um i don't want to quite have this be a eulogy for the u.s road scene but um you know it's it's so far from where it once was that it's, it's a little hard to even draw a comparison you know before the podcast started i was describing the the whaling city pro-am right. a race that now going back 30 years ago had a $50,000 prize list in Massachusetts and had teams coming over from Europe, had every team in the U.S. here, and just how far from that we are now. So, you know, road cycling has definitely, you know, changed quite a bit. And where it's going in the future, you know, I don't know. But I guess if people are out there enjoying riding their bikes, there's also tremendous value in that. So maybe we've lost something on the elite road scene, but we've also gained something in terms of people out there riding their bikes and um you know kind of riding for fitness riding enjoying themselves and and um you know what we're losing on one side we're kind of gaining on another yeah you have to be adaptable and agile and you know all of those things that like i think teams tend to get mired down on is you know what it is they did really great in year one might have to change in year two you know and i think that goes for events that goes for teams um but you know it's it it, it is it can be somewhat depressing Sure. Um, Sure. You know, when you think about like, when you look back to like your cycling days, like when did you kind of say, hey, look, I want to evolve more into the professional side of cycling and get involved in the industry, whether it be through reporting or whether it be through, you know, development of of patents and things like that. Like when did you make that that clear change? Yeah, I mean, it was was kind of a long gradual thing, to be honest. You know, I'm 52 now and I'm I'm still making that transition. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but you know, kind of in my late twenties, early thirties, you know, I, I sort of realized at some point, I guess in my mid twenties that I wasn't going to be a pro cyclist. I wasn't going to ride the Tour de France and there were still other good things for me out there. Um, and you know, that's kind of something that kind of, you know, everybody has to dream as you get into cycling. Everyone kind of, um, you know, imagines themselves as being a, you know, a, a top level cyclist. And then, you know, kind of reality comes in. You only have certain genetics, you only have, um, you know, certain abilities and, kind of to uh to take what what you've been dealt and um try to get as much satisfaction out of that as you can yeah absolutely so what do you find to be the most satisfying part of staying involved in the sport nowadays because obviously you still have your your hands in racing um through promotion and whatnot you're obviously out there training plenty um you know what what do you kind of draw from it now well you know i guess there's two things one is you know i i dabble in racing right now i've done uh the sole race i've done for the past um two years and this will be the third is gmsr it's just to make sure I've, i do one usac race a year nice this will bring me up to 38 years in a row of doing usac racing That's awesome and um i'm very much checking the box at this point but you know i still try to get out there and it gives me motivation to stay fit but you know the main thing that i like with cycling right now bobby and it's why i like announcing is I like bike racing to be exciting for people. Yeah. So when I'm announcing a race, it's not about me as, as it is for some announcers. I'll just say that. Um, it's about making the whole event exciting for the crowd and for the riders. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can kind of get everybody wound up, whether it's through 
kind of what I'm saying or through music or through whipping up a crowd preem or just getting everyone in a frenzy, people can get excited about the bike race and yeah. like, hot damn, that was just, that was fantastic. Did you see that guy hang out there like yeah. you winning Worcester? You know, there weren't a lot of people out there, to be honest, that night. But What do you mean? With one, with, uh, with one lap to go, you're hanging 10 seconds, <laughs> 7 seconds, or 5 seconds, whatever it was, uh, off the front of a hard-charging pack. And we're all like, is this guy going to make it? And course. nobody knew. And right, you pop out of the last corner with about a two-second gap, and you have Ugh. the U.S. Pro Crit Champion in the Stars and Stripes jersey with his head down, like, I'm going to get this guy. And nobody knew till you got to the line who was going to win the race. That, to me, is what makes bike racing exciting. Just that that suspense, that not knowing what happens. It's it's a little bit like, you know, the bases are loaded in, in, in a baseball game, yeah. you know, and the batter's up. Is he gonna is he gonna hit this thing out of the park and win the game or not? It, it's kind of that same suspense that yeah. you know a few pro sports can pull off. And and if I can help build that suspense yeah. in a bike race, that's really what's satisfying for me these days. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's what we need, right? Like you have, and I'm so glad that you you brought up. I love to hear you tell that story about Worcester over and over again. But um, you know, you bring up a couple really big characters in, in the race, right? Like, yes, Brad Huff, like big character, big personality. You know, I like to think that I kind of bring my own my own personality to it as well. But that's what it needs. You know what I mean? Like, it's inherently kind of a boring spectator sport. Somebody was telling me they're like, <laughs> I think I think there were some people at work that were like. Oh, I was watching the Tour de France today. Like it was so cool, and I was like, they were like, "Were you watching?" And I was like, "No." You know, like, <laughs> like admittedly, I'm like, you know, God, like I'll tune in because I know the last five k are going to be epic. Right, 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 right. I'm not going to watch the whole tour. Like that's just just madness. And so, you know, to be able to build those side stories and those personalities, and to have a conversation about a cyclist, but it's not about cycling, right? Like it's about like what they've contributed or where they came from or. Or were they a, uh, uh, a speed skater like Dick Ring always mentions? <laughs> or were they a police officer like, thankfully, you know, my, my personality has brought? But, you know, it's those things like, ugh, I hate to even quote it, but like, it's not always about the bike, right? It's about oh, not. the people that make that. And I think, I feel like, I feel like something has been lost. And I can even tell you like some of the personalities that are currently in the sport. And I feel like we, you know, maybe it's social media, maybe it's announcing, maybe it's um, team management, but I think we owe it to kind of bring that out because I think that's ultimately what's going to keep the sport alive and thriving. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of that, that, uh, and again, it's not unique to cycling, but kind of the fracturing of media channels. Um, and again, not to bash social media, we've gained a lot from it, but again, there's something we lost from it as well. When, um, you don't kind of have that, uh, that, you know, objective central voice kind yeah. of telling you like what's going on. You know, one of my favorite stories, and this is a great thing of personality is, there's a rider who I know very little about, but her name is, uh, I think it's Amy Bevilacqua. Hmm. She's won the Green Mountain Stage Race a couple of times, and she just kind of shows up and steamrolls the elite huh. women. And I don't really know much about her, and I Googled her. She's Canadian? And, no, she's American, and she's actually uh, an accomplished triathlete. She's just one of these people who has a huge aerobic motor and can just kind of just go out there and, you know, just do it, whatever yeah. sport she wants. Um, but what I found when I Googled her is that She's actually a former pro trapeze artist. Whoa. And that just that just hit me. I was right. like, that is awesome. Yeah. So, you know, at the Green Mountain Stage Race, I'm announcing the Burlington Quit Crit, and I bring her to the line, former pro trapeze artist, Amy Bivalacqua. Everyone looks around like, what? 
Did, what he, is did that? he really just say that? I really, yeah. yeah. And, and she looks at me, she's like, how did you find that? And I was like, you know, that's the sort of nugget yeah. that to me, you know, kind of brings so much richness and character yeah. to the sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying those things can't come out from social media. They absolutely can. Yeah. But, um, but those, I think what you're hitting on Bobby are, are some of those, those rich stories that really, sure. that really make cycling um, and other sports as well, but particularly cycling, yeah. you know, kind and, of and, you have to, and you have to want, is. you have to want to tell them, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's where, you know, there's a lot of, uh, oh God, I mean, if I could give shout outs to the people that I think have great stories, you know, um, Sam, right. Or Cole Archibald. The sure. Dentist, it's a dentist. You know you what know? I mean? It's like, how many, like you just like, you just you see a picture of him in his lab coat and his sensible hair as I tell him, you know what I mean? And then you see him at the bike race and he's an absolute monster ripping legs off of people, right? Right. Um, you know, Adam Meyerson. You know, Adam Meyerson has definitely leveraged social media to his benefit. Oh, to the max. Yeah. To the max. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's like two steps forward, sometimes one steps back. But <laughs> Adam Meyerson has created his brand. It's not he my brand, and I'm not as as into it as as other people are, but I do appreciate the fact that he's committed to his brand and, and, and it ultimately helps the sport. And so, sure. you know, if we're not telling those stories, if we're not using these outlets for it, then, then you know, what, what good is it all? Because ultimately, you got 120 people that are probably aiming to beat you and you're not going to be able to <laughs> brag about your results every weekend. So, right. Um, all right, man. Well, you know, we've kind of hit on a bunch of things that, like, we decided that we want to talk about. But um, what other things do you think are, are, are worth talking about you know, as we're talking about the evolution of our industry. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see kind of where road racing ends up in five years. You know, I, I've been involved, you know, I did my first licensed race as a as a, as a midget, a term that we don't use anymore. But that yeah. was that was what yeah. we now call Cub Juniors. And okay. I, was, I was 11 years old and my dad kind of stuck me on a bike. And, you know, my dad started racing in the late 1930s. So yeah. I have kind of an old dad, so it goes way back. Um, but... You know, my stories from my dad, kind of, of how low cycling got road cycling in the 50s and 60s, again, not to be negative, but they kind of come to mind right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the Long Show Classic has, the past two years, has had a field of about 75 riders. That's as small as it's ever been in the in the 60 years of the race. For the elite field. For the elite field. That's okay. right. So, you know, it goes back to um, kind of the dark ages of cycling. So, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that cycling's heading into a new dark age. It's not. It's got it's kind of splitting in a bunch of different directions. You have this thriving gravel, you know, scene and, you know, you have how many riders at dirty Kansas, you like 2000 riders or something. Sure. You have to sign up lottery. months in advance. Exactly. Yeah. So there's tremendous energy and excitement for cycling, but it's not, no, it's no longer focused just on the road scene. Mm-hmm. And we kind of need to adapt to that. Um, hopefully the road scene can survive it, but it's kind of not the only game in town. And, mm-hmm. You know, I'll bring this back to you, Bobby, because I think it's when you first got into sport. But in the early to mid '90s, road cycling also hit kind of a, a trough when mountain biking came on the scene, sure. and mountain biking was everything, and road cycling kind of dipped, and then road cycling came back. So I don't know. I'll throw it to you. What? Where do you think we're going to go with road cycling in the next five to ten years? Oh God, you know, I don't know because I'm kind of a bit of a. Um you know, I, I think I go back to the same thing over and over again, and I've always said this. You know, and and I'll I'll even throw this back to you know early two thousands when I got into the sport, right? And I was working at Smart Fuel Energy Foods, and Chris Lussier, my boss, the guy that founded Smart Fuel, um, also founded the Smart Fuel Cat Three series, right? right and that right. was a, that was that was connected races throughout New England, and you were sprinting either for the well, you were racing for the either the overall, which was a jersey. 
or the Smart Fuel Sprint Series, which was um, a jersey and, and a set of wheels type thing. And I think that in order to, so two things, right? You got to increase the experience. You got to make sure that there is something on site for everybody. And that was back in the day when we were whipping up smoothies. Oh God, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he was always selling peanut noodles and other Shackley products, right? And like, <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, I remember now that guy. you go to a bike race and, and there's actually nothing, there's nothing there, right? And he's smoothies, remember? You know, yeah, exactly. Right, right. At one point we were doing the coffee thing. Right. Um, currently, there's no draw. And now I say that exclusively for road because there is that at cyclocross. Um, but currently there's no reason for me to pack up Emery and Ellie and Tiffany and bring them to a bike race. And I, and I, you know, Don, please forgive me. I know you look forward to seeing my family for, for long Joe, but, um, <laughs> I don't bring them because logistically and for them to sit around all day, you know, if there's not a ton in it for them. And so that's where cyclocross and that's where gravel has done a really good job. And then the other thing that I brought up was the connected aspect of it, right? Like I should feel compelled as a new England bike racer to say, okay, it looks like the, let's just say the 1K to go sports series, and I'm not volunteering my services for this, but is connecting uh, an integrate crit, a Sun of P road race, I wish it was still around, um, plus the Concord crit and tour of hill towns and this, that, or the other, and say, you know, there is a best all around rider award for this. And it's not just a... I, I, Wait a second! I, didn't you win that award? I, I think I did. But yeah. <laughs> I just showed up and I got a jersey. That's amazing. right. That's right. But, but like you know, I didn't even know that I won it, right? And so like throwing that out there and saying like you know every race weekend I get to show up wearing this jersey as the leader, it's a great idea. And I know we've kind of dabbled in it, but I think connecting the promoters and connecting the series means that everybody kind of wins. Because if I'm a promoter trying to promote a bike race and I'm part of the series, I know that everybody's trying to push the riders to my race that's coming up. And so, you know, I think we have to kind of ride it out a little bit and, um, you know, hope that there are teams that are still painting a really pretty picture that are leveraging social media that are going out there and getting sponsorship. And I will say this too, and I brought this up and again, numbers are not my strong suit. I'm not a math guy. I'm an ideas guy. And my idea is this, if you're an elite team in new England and you have more than a $10,000 budget, I think that every, and you got to throw some bennies in there for the team, but I think every team should contribute a thousand bucks to some sort of series, right? And say, here is a thousand bucks that's going to a promoter. It's going to guarantee me five entries at every race, whatever it may be, but I'm going to actually put my money where my mouth is because what's the point of having a great budget on on a cycling program if you're not supporting the races that are ultimately going to be your platform for promoting greatness to your sponsors? And so... I would love to see something like that. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to that whole cycling ecosystem as we were talking about earlier that you need quality events and you need quality teams and they kind of have to support each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one one team I'm going to give a big shout out for right now is the Sunapee Racing Team yeah. because the uh, the Concord Crit was um, probably not going to go off this year. And yeah. the Sunapee Racing Team kind of stepped up and they said, you know what, even if we lose a little bit of money in this, yeah. We're going to make sure the race happens. It's been going on for, I don't know, 35 or 40 years. Yeah. And um, that's really a, a, you know, a lot of credit to those guys for yeah, doing absolutely. that. Absolutely. And um, it's a race that uh, I haven't been to for a little while, but, you know, it's one that I'm, I'm so glad is still going on. And yeah. if we had a little more of that going on, I think it would, uh, it would be healthy yeah. for the cycling scene. All right. So people are going to argue with me on this. And that's fine. You know what? Um, 
text me, call me, email me, whatever. Argue with me all you want on this, but I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm not a race promoter, and I've said that probably a half a dozen times on this 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 podcast. But if you are basing the success of your race and the operational expense of your race on entry fees, I'm going to tell you right now. I think you're doing it wrong. So if you could guarantee that operational expenses were covered, let's say 75% by sponsorship, then who cares who shows up at your race? And so I feel that one, my solution of having teams contribute to that operational budget would be beneficial, but also races need to go out there and pull in sponsors. Races need to be intelligent enough to say, you know what, I'm gonna charge a team 15, 20 bucks to park on the inner circle. I'm going to go out and get sponsorship so that when the flu takes over the elite peloton and nobody can show up for a race because they're hugging the toilet, that I'm not going to lose my shirt and not be able to do this race against next year, right? And so we always we always like kind of hinge our success on entry fees, but that's gone. Entry fees should cover the prize list, if you ask me. Well, in, in principle... You know, as a promoter of the Long Show Classic, that that's been my goal. The reality is, you know, we raise over thirty thousand dollars of sponsorship for the Long Show races, yeah. and that does not does not by any means cover the expenses. Mm. So, um, in principle, what you're saying, Bobby, I agree. How much, with, how much does it cover, though? Like, it, it covers in the realm of fifty percent. That's a pretty good amount. I would say that you guys are a unique format. That if you can say that fifty percent of your your funds are covered by. Uh, sponsorship then you could probably stand to lose 50 percent of your entry fees and still kind of be okay well numbers don't quite add up that right because yeah. you're not a numbers guy but, nope, um, not at all <laughs> <laughs> but you know and again it's also run as a 501c3 nonprofit, yeah. so there's some you know um we're not no one's yeah. getting paid there but yeah. you know just as a flip side virtually every cyclocross race is funded almost entirely by entry fees yeah. even even the vittoria series they do have some yeah. sponsorship from vittoria yeah. it's fantastic but the VAT, you know, yeah. I don't know the exact number, but, you know, 80% of the budget at least is, is entry fees. So yeah, that, I mean, that is the case with, with yeah. most events right now. And, and I, yeah. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but that's the reality of right. it right now. And, and, and I get it. Like, you know, the whole idea of, you know, if I'm a marketing guy, I'm going to tell the numbers guy to, to shove it because we can go out and get some more money for it. But it is a full ecosystem, right? Like, what's the point of sponsorship if you have 200 people show up, right? That's I can right. see great sponsorship value if you have 1,000 people show up. So you have to keep in mind that it's a complete ecosystem. Um, it, you know, Entry fees are not going to, to save you. Sponsorship is not going to single-handedly save you. But at some point, we need to all get together as racers and promoters and sponsors and say, like, here's, here's our package, right? Like, get involved. Let's connect this all together and try to save, like, you know, where we can save it. If it's New England, if it's Vermont, whatever it may be, I think it's worth saving. It's absolutely worth saving. Um, and I guess kind of my takeaway from it is that I'm not quite sure where cycling is going in the next, competitive cycling in the next few years. And, um, you know, if I had a crystal ball, it would, it would be great to be able to look and see what's going on. USA Cycling as well doesn't really know what's what's happening with it. Um, I think the only takeaway is that there's a lot of change right now, and um, that's kind of what you need to keep thinking about. That, yeah. you know, cycling was kind of static for decades, and it's it's changing really rapidly right now. Yeah. Well, if you can get me off of a crit course and get me to sign up in January for the Overland, I think anything's possible. There you go. There you go. <laughs> awesome. All right. Cool. Well, you know, I think um, 
We covered a lot of ground tonight. Um, I always do these podcasts and I kind of think like, oh gosh, like can we really cover this many topics and do we have time for, for future podcasts? But, you know, things we talked about tonight, you know, included, you know, the, the decline in road. Um, we didn't give too much attention to it, but I think it, it doesn't necessarily need our promotional um, efforts, but the incline or the increase in gravel, uh, the effects of social media on the team and, you know, just the overall identity crisis. So, you know, Alan, I think I want to kind of, I usually kind of reserve the last word for me to wrap it up but you're the much more professional voice in this this scenario so i think i'd rather kind of hear like you kind of close us out and and give us a give us a segue to the end man well i guess if i can give you a takeaway it's that you know um the main thing is is it may sound a little trite a little cheesy but just get out there on your bike there's a lot of ways to enjoy it there's there's road racing there's gravel there's cyclocross there's mountain bike racing. There's riding your bike to work. There's taking your kid in a trailer. You know, I love all of it. And um, I don't want to see one piece kind of take um, take an, uh, another port, piece of the sport, you know, at, at yeah. its expense. Uh, I kind of want to see everything grow. But the main thing is I want to see, you know, everyone out there having a good time on their bike and, and all aspects of the sport grow. So that's yeah. that's kind of my takeaway from it. Yeah. And things are changing quickly and, and we kind of need to adapt. But so long as there's lots of people um, out there riding their bikes yeah. as hard as they want, then then it's all good. That's exactly it. And I, I, I thought I was going to give you the last word, but you, you kind of reminded me of one thing, right? Like if we have thousands of people that are interested in riding their bikes, at some point, a small chunk of that's going to go to cyclocross. A small chunk of that's going to go to road racing. A small chunk of that's going to be advocacy. A small chunk of that's going to be gravel, whatever it may be. So I'm going to leave this with, you know, obviously a thank you to Alan for, for joining this podcast. So thank you for being here. Um, and I'm going to leave this with a quote from my daughter. So the other day I was actually riding my bike with my four and a half year old daughter who finally pedaling a bike on her own. And like the big monument there was that she's able to now start on her own and we're riding around and she says to me, she's like, daddy, isn't this the greatest feeling in the world? And I kind of was like, yes, Emery, it is. That's why I leave you on the weekends and selective weeknights. And so if you can capture that kind of energy and that kind of feeling about cycling um, and people getting out there and riding, then I think our sport's going to be a much better place. So uh, thanks for joining tonight. And Alan, thank you for being here.